Moving on. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that if, I mean, I knew, I should have known that if I asked that question, you would give me an answer. Yep. <laughs> Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by how to wrap text around a picture in Microsoft Word and then have the formatting still work out. Do you guys experience this problem when you're working on a grant and you want to put a picture into your grant? a figure of some kind, and then you wrap the text around it, yep. and then you edit the document, and suddenly the picture ends up three pages uh, away from where it originally was, and you move it back, and then all of the text starts to jump around. Yes. Yes. Why does this happen? And how 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 is there not an easy solution to this? Listeners, if you have a better solution to this, please let me know. I mean, you put everything in as PDFs. That's rule number one. And then you use the wrap function for square mm-hmm. square option but yeah. still it does that it still does this when weird anything thing. that's like close to the bottom or the top of the page is going to is going to time warp all around the document in random ways mm. it's really annoying agreed i don't know well, the answer anyway i am matt fox from the departments of epidemiology and global health and i'm here with chris grill from the department grill you said grill <laughs> but fine chris grill are you not chris grill gill Gil, sorry, I forgot. I forgot. It's, okay. uh, it's been a while. <laughs> you just keep asking me all those questions. From the Department of Global Health, not the Departments of Global Health. Say hello, Chris. So true. Say so hello. true. Yes, we're singular there. Say hello, Chris. It's a singularity. <laughs> Say hello, Chris. It is the black hole of the School of Public Health. Say hello, Chris. No light or learning can escape from our gravity. Say hello, Chris. Hello, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Jennifer Ryder from the Department... No of hope. epidemiology. No hope for those who go there. <laughs> Hello, Matt. You know what? Let's, Jen, let's Jen, keep going. This Jen, is, why don't you and I just do this podcast? Okay. We're going to talk about do, Ebola today. Do, yeah. Did you notice that, that on the episodes where Chris wasn't here, the episodes were like 25 were, minutes shorter? They were a lot shorter. We just were totally focused. Nailed Quality, all the key quantity, points. what are you guys saying? What are you saying here? You have both. <laughs> It's as, not an either or. As a reminder, go on over to the Population Health Exchange website. And I have not done a plug for in a while for a review. I haven't looked to see if we have any new reviews. Nick, do we have any new reviews? Nick doesn't is shaking his head. No, and sadly. We no should re- just go back to the old ones. We liked those. Or, or, or we could just write our own. Yeah. I'm thinking so pragmatic. Those would be really good. No, but I think we should give but a we, shout out to yeah. our Canadian fans. Yes. Do we yeah. have any? We no, have no. Canadian fans. We do. Explain. Explain. But, um, but you're from Canada. No. No. Do, Aren't you from Canada? Uh, no. No. Why that? did you think I was What's Canadian? I thought about? you were from Manitoba. <laughs> no? Why? Wow. No, I am from the Midwest, but of the U.S. Oh. Yeah. Okay, so explain. Which, um, which Midwest? Is, do, are there more than one? <laughs> do, uh, <laughs> I, I, I grew up outside of Chicago. Okay. Um, do, do, anyway. Uh, that's really L.A. on the lake. We, you don't check Twitter, Chris, so you may have, you may have missed that, but we received a very nice Twitter compliment. I'm trying to shorten that into something clever, a but tweet a meant from uh, Megan Azad, PhD, who is Canadian. Mm-hmm. That's, mm. that's all I know about her, except for she also has been really enjoying our podcast mm-hmm. on her daily commute. 
across the lake. And she she said that she would uh, she would she should probably do a review, but that they didn't know if they were welcome from their Canadian listeners. Because I you wonder remember, how she would have gotten that impression. If Chris. you remember in the past, <laughs> one or two of us have made jokes at the expense of our wonderful friends to the north who have much better health care than we do. We are obviously jealous, so we would love to come up to Canada anytime you invite us. However, we will not be going to a Montreal Canadiens game with you. Isn't that sort of redundant? Yes. What? Well, they're all Canadian in Montreal, so why? I don't get that. Oh, the Montreal Canadiens. No, we've had yeah. this discussion Hockey. before. They Hockey. do, yeah, Hockey. and they do let non-Canadians on the team. They oh. do. Yeah. I, do. I thought it was the Blue Jackets. <laughs> no, no, not even close. Columbus. Anyway. <laughs> now on to the show. Now that we've wasted four... Point four three minutes of your time. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club, we are going to talk about a trial of Ebola treatment. And this was, was kind of interesting to us because, you know, Ebola is really big in the news, but you don't hear so much about it from a research standpoint. In the second part of the podcast, that's our deep dive. We're going to talk about a paper that goes back to, and I, I really apologize because this is another case where we should be giving a shout out to a listener who sent this to us, and I've forgotten to write down. It was a listener who sent this to us because we had asked, sent it to us on Twitter. We had asked in the past, we had asked the question, do papers that get retracted get continue to get citations because they were retracted potentially or people just not being aware? So there's a paper on that particular topic going back to the particular one that we were talking about at the time, which is the Wakefield paper on MMR and autism. And then in our Amazing and Amusing, we will get into things that make us laugh out loud or Chris will tell us youth are ruining everything. It's true. And... Chris is apparently sniffing the microphone. What is going on there? I'm just checking it out. All right. <laughs> Segment one. So let's get into an article that talked about Ebola treatment. So it's published in the New England Journal of Medicine, where we get a lot of our studies. And it was entitled, A Randomized Controlled Trial of Ebola Virus Disease Therapeutics. Not vaccines. No. No. No, no. Although no. the vaccine sort of is part of the story, exactly. But, but yes, but these are not vaccines, right? Uh, by first author, and I'm going to need some help. Sabue Malangu, would Could that be. be right? Of the Institut National de Recherche Biomédicale of the Democratic Republic of Congo. That was terrible. I'm sure. My apologies to everyone. Now, what bothered me about this one, or bummed me out about this one, I should say, is it didn't get any press. We covered hmm. this one not because it was in the press, but because we thought it was an interesting topic. I could really only find this one from Medical Express, which said investigational drugs reduce risk of death from Ebola virus disease. So that's all I got, unfortunately. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so what do you make of that, both? I don't know. It, I mean, it, Ebola is such a hot topic that when there is news about people dying... Or, you know, people, I mean, that's all over the news. Right. And yet somehow when there is actual research to say something about treatment of Ebola, nothing. Particularly when, when several of the treatments really seem to work. Well, so you're, it's like you're, you're spoiler, happy. You're to say spoiler alert there, Well, I'm Chris. just saying, spoiler alert. But yeah. still, you know, you'd think that that would, that would be like good news about Ebola. You people, would think so. You would I, think, I think so. It's, I agree. It's funny. Jen, tell us about this study. You bet. So this study occurred during the August 2018 outbreak of Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the DRC. And that was the second largest recorded outbreak since the characterization of the Zaire Ebola virus infection back in 1976. Mm -hmm. The 
largest outbreak happened between 2013 and 16 in West Africa and led to 11,000 deaths. And at that time, the WHO initiated a variety of strategies for Ebola research. And one of those was the recommendation to study the most promising drugs in the setting of a randomized control trial following a new outbreak. So this PALM trial, PALM means together something together. Yeah, I didn't write it down. Well, yeah, we'll get back to that. But anyway, PALM does stand for something. It was a result of that WHO recommendation for for randomized trials during an outbreak. So the the study was initiated in 2018. It was comparing ZMAP, which they actually refer to as the control, which is a triple monoclonal antibody agent, another treatment called remdesivir, which is a nucleotide analog RNA polymerase inhibitor, MAB114, which is a single human monoclonal antibody derived from an Ebola survivor. Okay. And then finally- The best one. REGNEB3, which is a co-formulated mixture of three different human IgG1 monoclonal antibodies. No relation to C3PO. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) So the fourth treatment, the REGNEB3, We need need an abbreviation for this abbreviation. I know. Let's Um, call it the... Regan That's not helpful. That's not helpful. So that was actually added to the protocol late. So it was added in January 2019, but all comparisons with that and ZMAP were done just in patients that were concurrently enrolled in the trial. All of the drugs were delivered intravenously, but the number of required doses of each drug varied. So the MAB114 and REGN-EB3 groups received single doses. The other ones required more than one dose over some number of days. All patients also received standard of care, which included things like IV fluids, daily lab testing, antibiotics, and anti-malarials as needed. The main endpoint in the study you know, this is very different from a cancer trial, was death at 28 days. Amazing. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Unambiguous. Yeah. The participants were eligible based on an RT-PCR assay to detect RNA of the Ebola virus nucleoprotein. To be eligible, they required that a patient have a positive RT-PCR result within three days of enrollment, and they also could not have received any experimental drugs other than vaccines. They enrolled participants of any age. That includes pregnant women and also uh, neonates if the mother had documented Ebola. Mm -hmm. The randomization was stratified by uh, viral load, and the study was powered to detect 50% lower mortality in each of the groups compared to the ZMAP group. So, Can, can, Can we pause on that just for a second? Absolutely. So the fact that the outcome is mortality at 28 days is, is, I mean, is indicative of what a serious problem this is and how sad that is to begin with. And then the fact that, you know, I mean, so many studies are never powered on mortality because the effects are so small that we're never going to be able to see mortality effects. And even if you could, the effects would be, part of the reason for that is because the effects would be small. Here you're powering for a 50% reduction in mortality, that means there's just massive amounts of mortality. The baseline is close to 80, 90% mortality. Such a sad thing. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And and, and remarkable, I would say, 
that pregnant women and infants of pregnant neonates were included rather than excluded, which is the usual. Yeah. I yep. mean, that, that, again, it's like the ethics of this are so driven towards we've got to treat because the probability is they're going to die. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that powering of the study ultimately required about 145 patients in each of the groups, but the protocol was amended in July 2019 to increase the sample size to 725 to improve power. So that was... 185 in each group, with the exception of the REGN-EB3 group, um, which was added late. There were eight patients that were excluded, one who was ineligible due to false positive Ebola virus disease result. Seven were randomized during a two-week interval when ZMAP was actually unavailable because of problems with the cold chain conditions. There were 681 patients in total randomized between November 2018 and August of 2019. The vast majority of them were 18 years old and older, so 74%. And then there were about 13% between 6 and 17 years and 13% who were 5 years or younger. About half were female, of whom 6.1% were pregnant. 25% self-reported that they had received the Ebola vaccine prior to being infected. Mm -hmm. The mean time to enrollment was 5.5 days after the onset of of symptoms. They collected plasma samples from a subset of the participants and um, were interested mostly in markers of renal function. So they measured creatinine and aspartate aminotransferase, which were both higher in the ZMAP and the remdesivir groups than in the other two groups. Um, but there was substantial missing data on those those measurements and mm-hmm. also some indication that the samples weren't of great quality. Yep. They did an interim analysis in August 2019, which led to termination of randomization to ZMAP and remdesivir. There were 673 patients included in the primary analyses, 290 patients had died at day 28. So that's 43.1%. Really sad. It varied by viral load. Um, again, this was stratified by by viral load. So 18.8% mortality in the low viral load group and 76.1% in the high viral load group. Compared to ZMAP, the absolute difference in mortality was 14.6% lower in the MAB 114 group. Mm -hmm. That difference, again, compared to ZMAP, was 17.8% lower in the REGN-EB3 group. And the difference was just 3% comparing remdesivir to ZMAP. And, you know, there were some baseline characteristic imbalances, but the results were consistent when when they controlled for those. The other interesting thing is that the time to a first negative result on rt pcr was substantially shorter in both the MAB114 groups and the REGN groups, so um, 16 days and 15 days, compared to ZMAP, which was 27 days Mm -hmm. to the first negative result. Mm -hmm. And then there were a number of other variables that were prognostic. So if you waited to receive treatment, there was an 11% increase in the odds of death for each day of delay of treatment, higher viral load, higher creatinine, and other markers of of renal function also increased the odds of death. And 27.1% of the patients who had received the vaccine died versus 48.4% who did not self-report vaccination. So given that the listener is 
unless they're intimately familiar with not only Ebola, but these specific treatments, is not going to remember each one of those different things. I mean, how, how can we summarize basically the take-home message here? What would you, how would you describe it? Yeah, I mean, I think two of the, the treatments, the MAB-114 and the REGN-EB3, it seems had a very strong beneficial effect on, on mortality. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So, Chris, what do you think of the study? Good, good study? Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine how they managed to pull this off. This is really difficult. This has got to be probably the most difficult randomized control trial to run that I, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Not just because, you know, you're dealing with an incredibly difficult, dangerous, deadly disease. Dangerous. Where the trial investigators are wearing Tyvek suits. Yeah. And, you know, in scorching hot, humid weather and just it's, it's so difficult to just do the procedures to get the bloods, to follow the patients, to measure these these values and to do all of that without in, inadvertently exposing yourself to Ebola and dying yourself. We, we, we said that this was in the Democratic oh Republic gosh. of Congo, right? We, okay, yeah. I just make sure yeah. we, on top we, of that, we leave that out. It's in the middle of, of this literal war zone where, uh, you know. In, in the same areas that they're doing this trial, Ebola vaccine teams are being murdered by the local population because of fears of, you know, basically conspiracy theories that are being spread around by, by dissident groups. So, you know, all of the odds of them being able to pull off the trial were, were, were there, and yet they still Against did them. really a pretty spectacular job. Yeah, this is a pristine trial. 98% of the participants re- received treatment according to protocol, right. despite which of course, all of those Which, of course, is, is facilitated by the fact that they're in these Ebola treatment centers where they cannot leave because mm-hmm. they've been quarantined. So mm-hmm. it, 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 it is... It's, it's awkward to say this way, but they are a captive population, so they, they don't have to worry about loss to follow up because they can't leave, you know. But it also yields a very, very precise answer to a very important question. And as Jen was saying, the answer is absolutely unequivocal. The, the Regnum 3, EB, EB3, and the MAB 114 reduce mortality by half. And 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 so Ebola is not, uh, is not a... a you know, quite the death sentence that it could have been, though still, let's be honest, twenty four percent mortality is, is pretty still shockingly high. Well, absolutely, and 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 the the reductions here are large, but you're working and you're working off of a big baseline. So you know, we often talk about the difference, presenting things as risk differences versus relative risks. And here, and the, so the much risk different blows away the relative risk. Well, and I, either one. I mean, often the problem that we experiences, we're talking about low probability events, you know, heart attacks in 25-year-olds or, 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 or AFib in 25-year-olds is low. And so a relative risk of 25% sounds impressive, but may actually be off of a tiny base. Here, you're talking about a, a, a very high percent uh, percentage event. And so a 50% relative reduction, you know, would be a, would be a huge, mm-hmm. a huge reduction. So these are big. Any chance, though, that these effect sizes may be overstated? And I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, of course, is just the this, the simple fact that it's trial conditions. As Chris points out, the trial conditions are not great, but they are at least being you know run like a trial, and so you might have slightly better implementation. But I'm not so worried about that. But also, just you know, in general, we, we tend to find that when when we we're doing interim analyses and we find uh, differences, large differences between groups, such that we'd want to stop the trial early, those tend to overstate things. That things tend to come back to not that not that this isn't going to be hugely important, even if it's only a twenty five percent reduction. But I do wonder if the the benefits are quite as large as what they found in this trial. Well, I mean, I think the the 
the, what is this? The the rel the rendesivir arm is at a structural disadvantage because it's a daily infusion of this drug. There's a loading dose, and then you give it every day for 13 days. But as we know, most most of the mortality, 97%, they quote this here, 97% of the mortality due to Ebola was in the first 10 days. And so a daily drug like that is 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 is, is probably going to have a tough time against a single dose like the MAB-114 or the Regin-EB3. But with that said, it's also a practical difference that this is a, a medication that can be given once that works immediately uh, if it's going to work and apparently has very low uh, risk of adverse events. It's probably expensive, but that's that's not our consideration here and offers so many practical advantages over a daily drug that one wouldn't have to take before. Now, with that said, what if they'd given the, the, the rendesivir at the point of exposure to Ebola as a prophylactic, then maybe the, the drug would have had some better chance to show some yeah. efficacy. Here, I think it didn't have a chance to, I, to show that it could do anything. And I think that, so you, you, you talked about the early mortality. If you looked at the, the, uh, the Kaplan-Meier curves on this, which you shouldn't read too much into the Kaplan-Meier curves, but let me do it anyway. You know, these curves separate after four days, five days, let's say. In the first five days is really very little separation to any of these curves such that, you know, it seems to me there are a bunch of people who are coming in who are, the, no treatment is going to help them. They are so sick mm -hmm. that, you know, you're just... The train is going over the cliff. Yeah. And so if you administered... So so I, I think you may be right that if you had administered to this to a population earlier, you might be able to get even bigger benefits. And if you administer it later, you might lose the benefits. So I think this is... That you know is going to be highly could, dependent. Could go either way. Yeah, yeah. it's also um, small numbers, so we're not talking about you know. So so if there are you know special things about this population in terms of uh, malnutrition, in terms of anything else that might you know predict mortality, those might influence what we would see if we if we had a you know a, a, a more generalized or, or if we tried to generalize this finding. You know, just just things that occurred to me that made me. Oh, there and also, as you mentioned, there were some imbalance. You know, this was not a large trial, and so there were imbalances between the arms. Does that matter? I mean, that is not necessarily, but it 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 it. If there were things that were highly prognostic of the outcome, then maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, there were some imbalances in the patients who died after enrollment, but before they could receive treatment. That that definitely favored. MAB-114 and the REGN groups. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, the sickest patients in those groups died before they could could be treated. And, and you're right. And, you know, because it's a little bit, it's a smaller trial, you have to factor that in. So, and the, and the, I will say the confidence intervals on these effect sizes were pretty, you know, they were not massive, but they were wide. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think we know exactly how big the effect is because of the way the trial was set up, but I... There's clearly an indication. There's clearly a signal that, and 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 it should be pointed out. We're not going to have tons of opportunities to do trials like this for all the reasons that we said, but also because this is just we need to act. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is a case where we're going to have to go off the best evidence we have, which mm -hmm. I think this is it. So one thing I found particularly interesting, even though it wasn't remarked upon at much depth, was 
the interaction between the Ebola vaccine and mm-hmm. the treatment for Ebola yeah. here. So it's noted in, in one of the uh, later paragraphs in the results section that the percentage of patients who died who had previously received the, the recently licensed Ebola vaccine uh, was 27% versus 48.4% uh, in those who had not received the vaccine. Now, it's interesting because in the fine print, they also say that the these individuals had all received the vaccine within the preceding 10 days. And why that matters is that it takes some time from when you're vaccinated to mount an immune response mm-hmm. to the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And so none of the patients apparently who had been vaccinated for you know, more than 10 days before, there were very few of those individuals who entered in this trial, presumably because the vaccine worked almost right. 100%. Mm-hmm. Now that is interesting. And so what we're seeing is that even within that first 10 days, any exposure to the vaccine, you know, is is having a, a, a profound effect on overall mortality. I agree. Um, and so the two of them combined are, are, are probably even better. So both pieces of information uh, have really changed the landscape on Ebola compared with a year ago. Yeah, and and yet we still could do. I mean, obviously the mortality is still around fifty, forty percent. So, ways to go. But, but but I think the fact that that there are these other independent prognostic variables, I think provi- provides some information on how you could improve on that. Like you said, I mean, if people are treated earlier, you know, if their viral loads are controlled, it seems like it would be even more effective. Uh, absolutely. I guess that's where I, you know, I was going back to the point I was trying to make earlier. I do think that there is some indication here that the effects could potentially be somewhat overstated because I think, you know, this is a trial. I agree it's a trial in bad conditions or tough conditions, I should say, but a trial nonetheless. In reality, you know, you may not be able to administer treatment that quickly just because of the the volume of patients that you would be dealing with in an Ebola outbreak potentially. And so you, you might not see quite as big a benefit. Um, so cold chain also a huge issue. Yeah, here. absolutely. So one other thing I wanted to, to raise, there were, a, so this, this, Trial changed a fair bit over time. So they added an arm, they changed the sample size. You know, this is sort of not the way we think of as best practices for running a randomized trial. Does that change your uh, interpretation of the results at all? I don't think so, because uh, I think the results are so spectacularly self-evident that, that I, you know, I, I kind of think of those things as being marginal effects that nudge you a few percentage points one way or the other. And when we're dealing with small, low-volume events, then I start to wonder whether some bias could have, like, you know, created the appearance of something when there was nothing there. But in this case, it's just like, you know, this is this is... This is obvious, guys. The, well, and not worked. adding, you know, the decision not to add that other arm would have been a missed opportunity to actually exactly. find a treatment that was effective. I mean, I think, you know, to be flexible um, to those kind of changes, I think here was a real advantage. I mean, here is a, a true example of pragmatism in a way. Right? Yeah, they're, they're making life and death decisions and doing research at the same time. And I think this so, so, so obviously, I, and I share your views completely. This is this is, I think, the case where we spend a lot of time talking about the methods and how to do the best possible study. But we also have to recognize that we exist within a world where there are times, and I you know, I consider this more the exception than the rule, but there are times like this where action needs to be taken immediately and we need the best available evidence that we can bring to bear on that particular problem. 
quickly and, and ethically. And we have to accept, right, quickly and ethically. And we have to accept that that things will not be done perfectly and we still are going to have to use the evidence that we have. So I, I have no problem with these, these decisions either. I was curious, interestingly enough, about the decision that they made when they added the fourth arm to only compare patients in the control groups, control meaning the other arms, but who were enrolled concurrently. I, I you know, I mean, the decision presumably rests on the idea that if there were secular changes going on. Like the introduction of this new vaccine. Introduction of the new vaccine, or just we got better at being able to deliver, you know, these these different treatments or whatever. Although I suppose actually that would argue for the opposite. But anyway, you know, changes you're, you're trying to standardize for that. I, 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 it doesn't seem to be necessary in this case, but it's, it seems to be perfectly fine that that was the decision that they made. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I would have been curious to see the results if they hadn't done done that restriction. I can't, think it would can't be Can't imagine it would, it would have made much difference, yeah. but yeah. Any other points anyone wants to raise before we move on from this one? So a couple, I'll just take a couple of last words on this one. So, okay, I talk a lot about the length of introductions and discussions, but this, I think, took the cake for the shortest introduction I have ever read. And that seems to be a New England journal, the two, two, two very short paragraphs. It seems to be a New England Journal of Medicine thing. And this made me realize that I actually really dislike writing introductions. So I've made the decision that from now on, I'm only publishing in the New England Journal of Medicine. <laughs> so if you guys are listening, just give me a call and we can just send my, you know, we can just set up the pipeline. For my one paper a year. I'm sure it'll be no problem. <laughs> Second thing, I, I really dislike when journals print the tables sideways when they print it. I mean, I don't mind if they print it sideways the entire page, but if they take part of the page and then print the text portrait, but the figure landscape, because then I have one of two options. One is I can take my entire, cause I read this on my computer. I can take my monitor and turn it all the way to the side, or I can lie on my side and read the journal article or r- rotate back and forth with the pivot command. No, no, but no. That's tedious. No, no, I'm not doing, I'm not doing that. That That's okay. too much work. I'm not doing that. So I either have to turn my entire body or turn my entire monitor. The point is just don't do it. Yeah, I agree. Last but not least, they did use odds ratios in this paper for a very common outcome, which would tend to overstate some of the effect sizes. But honestly, in this case, I'm going to give them a pass. Okay. Good job, guys. Fantastic paper. Let's talk about the Wakefield citation paper. So this is our, our second segment. We're talking about a article in the JAMA Open. I think that's what it's called. JAMA, JAMA Open. Network Open. JAMA Network Open. I don't know what that means exactly, but JAMA... It's JAMA, the JAMA Network's first open access journal. Right. The JAMA Network's first... It's like first. BMJ Open, except JAMA. Yeah, but it's not BMJ Network Open. No, well, I know. I guess it should be BMJ Network... Jam on, I yeah. don't know. Anyway, Open. it's not the point. First author was Elizabeth Sulzer, uh, and it was entitled Assessment of Citations of the Retracted Article by Wakefield et al. with Fraudulent Claims of an Association Between Vaccination and Autism. It's a very nice title. It's a very nice title. And so I'll read you a few things from the paper just so you get a sense of it. So the objectives of the study were to examine the characteristics of citations from scholarly literature that reference the 1998 article by Wakefield et al. to investigate whether the authors are accurately citing retracted references. So this is a paper that we actually discussed on this podcast many, many, many moons ago about the article, the fraudulent article by Wakefield, Andrew Wakefield, that that claimed to have found a link between MMR, vaccination, and autism. 
So it was a cross-sectional bibliographic analysis of the scholarly publications that cited the 1999 paper. They scraped them from Web of Science through March 2019. And among the uh, 1,153 citing works, the most common citation characteristics were negative. So that was 72.7%, followed by perfunctory, 9.2%, and affirmative, 8.2%. And you should define those. So negative would mean they, they were saying something negative about this retracted paper, perfunctory meaning they didn't really say much at all, and the affirmative, the small proportion, were studies that were citing this as if it was good science, even though the paper has been Evidence retracted. Evidence supporting their own hypotheses. Exactly. A total of 123 of 322 citing works, so 38.2%, published between 2005 and 2010, documented that there was a partial retraction of the study. After the notice of retraction was published in 2010, so the full retraction, the percentage of citing works that documented the partial retraction and or notice of retraction between 2011 and 2018 increased to 71.2%. So since the publication of the Wakefield, of the retraction, authors have mostly um, negated the findings, but a significant number of authors did not document the retraction. And this suggests that we need more improvements in what we do about retracted articles that still get cited. Right. And it, and it, and it, we have to be really specific here because they did not document the retraction in the way they cited the Wakefield paper. So like, for example, the author could have said in the, you know, now thoroughly discredited Wakefield analysis reference 32, you know, Andrew Wakefield falsely claimed blah, 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 but this has now been shown to be categorically untrue period. Mm -hmm. But in the bibliography that when you go down to reference 34, it might not say they're retracted. So technically, that would that would be an example of a failure to cite the retraction in your bibliography. Well, I'm curious. Yeah, no, that, I, fair enough. Uh, I'm curious to know. Oh, sorry. You, did you have more to that point? Well, well I, I did actually because I, I I was struck by this point and I was thinking it's like, huh? I wonder if I have ever made that mistake because I I suspect I have cited Wakefield's paper once or twice. Yes. And oh, always I in the context of like cited, saying that he's a villain, right? And that you know this is terrible. But I don't know that I have ever paid any attention to what end note does. So last night I went on to my oh, EndNote boy. manager and I, t I pulled up Andrew Wakefield Lancet 1998 and I plunked it into a paper and EndNote does not add that. Well, you would have retraction. to pull the citation for the, so if you, if you got the citation now, presumably it would probably, uh, you get the retracted no, one. No, no, no. That's what I'm saying. It's like when I went on to the web, when I went on to PubMed and searched for Wakefield and then tried to insert it into my document, it comes off of PubMed without any mention on the on the EndNote template. Interesting. So EndNote brings in this well, sort of Well, they talk about this in the article and how your right. reference managers vary a lot in terms of how they handle retractions. And so right. how it seems like Web of Science is kind of one step ahead of this. And it's like all over the place that this article has been retracted, you know, even if it's all already in your library of citations. But yeah, but if you're a user of EndNote, you may not, I mean, this one was highly publicized and you would need to be like More living under a rock to not know that that paper was retracted. But there are others that maybe are less obvious and you wouldn't right. know but, if you just refer back to a citation that you previously you put in your, your library. Into the text and you're saying the retracted article by Wakefield et al., which said falsely, blah, 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 blah. But then the bibliography you would, in EndNote, you would actually have to go in, pull up that reference, edit the reference manually to say retracted. 
right. and then save it, and then you could cite it, and it'll show up in the bibliography that way. But if you don't take that that extra step, if you just take it off the web, which was what we reflexively do, because it's the obvious, easy thing to do, you're looking for abstracts. You you say that's the one I want. Plunk, click in next. You yeah. know, you're just you're just moving forward, trying to get your 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 references in. You're not really thinking about that. 100% Doesn't even agree. occur to me 100% that agree. that would be an issue. So I, I felt like probably they're 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 they may be overstating things a little bit because there's a technological back end to this that that um, is subtle. Well, here's the question: Do do retracted publications need to be cited at all? Could we? I mean, is there a need to actually say, you know, the retracted paper by Wakefield citation? Can we just? Refer to the retracted paper so by Wakefield. Punish them by refusing, like I don't even think it's punishment. He, I just think why are we citing? Named? Do we need to cite a paper that has been retracted? Can't we just talk about it in the you know sort of in general? Yeah, it does confuse what a citation is, right? I mean, we typically view that as praise, right? Like more citations is a good thing, and certainly the H index and absolutely you know, these, these these measures. Wake, Wakefield that, is kicking kicking my butt. On, on his citation. Yeah, is that true? Yes, absolutely. He's been cited 1,100 times. This guy's off the chart with his paper. It's one of the most highly cited papers in history. Wait, 1,100 is not... 11,000, 11, did you say? No, this paper has been cited. The not, Wakefield paper. Not Wakefield, but the Wakefield paper is one of the most highly cited papers in history. That's really? what they say, yes. Okay, okay. I didn't... I, it would, that would have to be more than... A thousand, but anyway, not 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 important at the moment. But I think Jen, your point yeah, here, is here, look, here's the statistic. So, on the Web of Science, as of 2014, there were 58 million references in Web of Science's database, and of those, only 14,499, 0.03 percent have been cited more than a thousand times, and one of those is Wakefield's at 1,200 times. So he is in the 99.9th percentile of of papers who have been cited a lot. He has won wow. the race in the H index on this paper, even wow. though it is fraudulent and retracted. Wow. I know. It's a total buzzkill. I still, yeah. I, okay. I want to go back to, because Jen, I think your point is really the, the, the kicker here, which is this is famous. I mean, everybody in our circles knows about the Wakefield fraud and you know, the retraction. And there are a couple other famous ones that, that we all know about, but most papers that get retracted, I don't know anything, you know, about them. And so, you know, the chances that, I, I mean, I suppose, obviously if you're citing it, you presumably know something about the topic. So you're going to know more than the average, just general epidemiologist who's out there. But still, it seems to me that the chances of the Wakefield people being ignorant of the Wakefield paper is lower than people being ignorant of most other retracted papers. And I wonder if you repeated this study in, you know, uh, it, it, using a different source, whether you would find it would be quite as low. Cause I mean, cause, cause I mean, I, I generally take this as good news, right? Most of the, most of the studies that are talking about this are citing it in a negative way. Right. But, you know, there's still some and there shouldn't be any. But OK. Right. okay. No, but I think you're completely right. I think if it was a less I, publicized. That's I say it was your idea. Well, exactly. <laughs> you, you, know, you know how I operate. Um, I think if you looked at a less publicized retraction, the news would be much, much worse here. And yeah. um, But I also, you know, how does this relate? What about studies with 
erratums, right? Like something that's less egregious, you know, it doesn't require retraction, but there's an air in it. But you can imagine that air could be propagated because, you know, we don't really cite the erratums. We just cite the paper. Um, And and again, I think this Mm. is, it's a failure of our reference manager software in a way, because it's so it makes it difficult for us to find them. You know, there's, I don't know, it's all, everything's linked online. Like it shouldn't be that hard to let us know, you know, beep, 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 that that paper that you're about to stick in your, your bibliography has an erratum attached to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you could say that, I mean, the, the, the software program should have ways to deal with this if it ends up, right. If, the, if there's retracted information that ends up in the database from which you're pulling, that should be in there. And you could say, well, so then it's the database's fault that they're pulling from. But it does seem to me that there's not a lot of excuse in the case of the Wakefield paper because, again, this is so famous that you would think that the the you know PubMed and and Web of Science and all those databases where these citations come from would you know somebody would have flagged it for them. Hey, we we probably should make sure that the citation says retracted. But, but of course, this is the problem of the Wakefield paper. This is this is an example of fake news, right? That, um, you know, there's still a significant portion of the world that continues to point to Andrew Wakefield's article, fraudulent and retracted as it is, with all of his co-authors disavowing it yep. uh, as early as 2004, they still cite that as evidence that the MMR causes autism. Yep. I mean, it's it, like, it, here we are in public health. Again, we cannot put the genie back in the bottle. It is so hard. I also wanted to know, it just occurred to me as we were discussing, how often does it occur that Andrew Wakefield is asked to serve as a peer reviewer? Oh, I, I would, would love never. to know. But why should we assume never in this cynical age in which we live? Um, geez, because I would think that journalists would be very afraid of that. I mean, I don't, other than predatory journals, I assume that most journals are not pushing, I don't think that journals are pushing an agenda and therefore they are, you know, they want the best science that they can possibly get. And therefore they know that Wakefield is a household name for fraud and wouldn't allow him to be invited. That is my, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming. I wonder how one could find out. It would be very Uh, difficult to do that analysis. I know, but I'm, I'm curious. The cynical part of me wants to know. Yeah. Yeah. Any last points anyone wants to make on this one before we move on to the... He, he was a very bad guy, people. Um, yes, but but a huge... I want to just want to say a huge shout out to the listener, and I'm so sorry that I forgot who it was who sent us this because I would not have come across this on my own, and it, it is the answer to the question that we asked on this podcast many moons ago, and it was nice that somebody was A, listening, B, looking into these questions, and C, had the... Um, foresight and energy to actually send it to us. So thank you to our amazing listeners as we move into the amazing and amusing. Okay, I'm going to go I'm going to go first this time for the amazing and amusing cuz mine this time is is uh it's a quiz for you guys. Hmm. So I was vacuuming this weekend, just doing some vacuuming around the house, and I had been reminded of the fact that well, I think I think that my parents maybe even, but generally that that there are some people who refer to the vacuum as the Hoover, mm-hmm. and of course that is a brand name, mm-hmm. and so that got me thinking: how many things could I name for which we use a brand name as the generic name for the thing? Mm-hmm. So off the top of your head, 
How many can you name? Because I then went and looked up a list of things, and this won't be a comprehensive list, but I'm just curious that the things that you can think of for which we use a brand name to encompass even any version of that. Hmm. Kleenex. Yep. That's one. I think I can think a lot of um, kitchen gear. So the Cuisinart. The Cuisinart. Yep. That's a good one. <laughs> any others? There must be so many. Velcro. Nick just threw oh. in Velcro. Mm. That's a good one. Mm. Band-aid. Thermos. Mm. Nice. Thermos probably would be, yeah. Thermos, Thermos would, would, would be. Um, chapstick. Sure. Is another one. Uh, dumpster apparently is one. That huh. There was actually a... Dumpster was a brand that that turned into the really yeah. Um, what about asphalt? When they later discovered it was no one's fault, I'm <laughs> gonna leave that one alone. Uh, fr- frisbee, <laughs> frisbee is that a brand? Frisbee is a brand. Uh, right. But now, uh, tell who, me you got some online help for this and didn't oh, no, like no, no, think no. of these all oh, yourself. I, didn't think of, I only thought okay. band aid. Okay, the only one oh, that that's I a good one. Um, uh, jacuzzi. Huh, okay. really? That's yeah. a brand? Jacuzzi is a brand. Wow. Obviously, Jeep is. Jeep. Uh, Lazy Boy. Ah. Uh, I did not know this. Jet Ski. Really? It's actually a, it's a it's brand. It's a brand. Huh. Lava Lamp. Um, memory Stick. Memory Stick? That's a brand? Memory Stick was actually a... How about, a, how about, um, how about tape? Like uh, sticky tape? Scotch tape. Scotch tape. Mm. Scotch tape is or definitely duct one. Tape. Or duct tape. Duct tape. Not just for ducks. Uh, ping Pong, apparently. Really? Yeah, that was a new one to me. Popsicle. Huh. Uh, Post-it. We definitely use Post-it as as a generic. How about orange juice? And this was one that really, uh, no. This is one that surprised (laughs) me. I don't really know what to make of it. Realtor. Why do they call it orange juice? Realtor was actually a company, and it just became known as That's Your Realtor because they were the company that was known for realtors. Because (laughs) I think, don't, now don't they prefer buying or selling agent? Yeah, Isn't probably. Isn't it a little like yeah. like air stewardess and flight attendant? Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 right. Anyway, so that and just want to show you, Nick Velcro was on my list. All right, and Walkman. How about the other Speedo? One. Do anyone know what a Walkman is? Yes, of course. Nice we one. do because we're old. Yeah, but our millennial listeners or the disc which, or the Discman. The Discman. We should we should get oh, our kids Walkman t- for. Christmas. Yes. <laughs> that will, they'll be so happy. I think they'll be and thrilled. And some, some tapes. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. All right. Chris, what do you got? Uh, okay. Killer whales. I'm going to talk about killer no! whales. Oh, no. Killer no. Whales? Oh, no. You guys have the do same we one? We the same we one? Do. Oh, no. Grandmothers? Yeah. Oh. I can't believe All right. You guys can share one. Do it together. Okay. Do it together. Okay. Do okay. it together. Tag team it. You start. Tag team it. All right. So. Uh, oh, can I just start with my intro? Sure, sure. That's yes. Go ahead. You have. That's the part that I was most excited about. You do and then he'll take over. Okay. So. This study was intended to answer like these burning evolutionary questions right up there with why do men have nipples? Uh-huh. We don't we 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 because because they can they can be okay. stimulated to make milk. We don't No, it's true. Moving on. You just change the hormonal state and and they'll they'll function. Moving on. Yeah, I I didn't realize that if I mean I knew I should have known that if I asked that question you would give me an answer. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, not that it's a practical, pragmatic thing to do. No, so, but this study was looking at essentially what is the evolutionary advantage of menopause? Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Which Good I had never really 
thought deeply about, but um, but the authors of this study do. Okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it back to you because I, I think I think you've, you've got a, <laughs> not that you have menopause, but but well, uh, you actually but, read but the study. I, but you you you, I I feel guilty that we we found the same thing. I will say that a couple of years ago, I read this wonderful book called the um, the Soul of an Octopus. Or something like that. It mm-hmm. was it was all about this uh, science reporter who became very interested in octopuses and did a lot They're of work. So smart, uh, at, yeah. The, at the Museum of Science, and I remember that there was this very poignant episode in the book where the octopus that she had bonded with and had become very friendly with, and the octopus would basically every time she walked into the the aquarium would sort of crawl up and put its tentacles out so that, it, that they could hold hands. And, and it was it was like truly the octopus loved this woman and was. But, you know, they just loved each other. And she put her hands in the tank and the octopus would wrap all around it and just caress her for hours and then without Aww. biting her. And eventually the, the octopus um, was getting old and raised a clutch of eggs, but she hadn't been fertilized. So she just produced the eggs by herself. And she sat on her clutch and took care of her clutch, which, of course, were never going to hatch. Um, and eventually, you know, she got old because the octopuses will not eat while they are taking care of their, their eggs. And so then they, and they die immediately after the eggs start to hatch. And so like, here is an example of an animal where their life ends with reproduction quite literally. As soon as they raise their first clutch of eggs, they die. And this is true of all octopuses. And, and so when I, when I saw the, the the orca article, I was like, wow, you know, here is the exact opposite. So I'm going to pass it back to you, Jen, but I, I found this really touching this article. No, but that, that is a great introduction because actually most mammals, at least it turns out, have this declining ability to reproduce with age that aligns right along with, you know, decreased survival with age, right? Like those things typically go hand in hand with only a few exceptions. Humans, short-finned pilot whales, belugas, narwhals, and killer whales. Hmm. Those are the only species that seem to have long post-reproductive lifespans. Post-menopausal survival. Exactly. So killer whales can actually stop reproducing in their late 30s or early 40s, but live for decades afterwards, much like humans. And so there's this idea of, you know, in trying to explain why that might be, these authors turn to the grandmother effect. Mm. Which is this idea that grandmothers support the fitness of the species by helping their grand offspring that depend on the provision of food for some period of time after weaning. There's evidence of this grandmother effect in elephants, but elephants are different because they don't have menopause. They don't have menopause. They reproduce right up until they they die. Yeah. There is no evidence of the grandmother effect in other non-human animals that have long post-reproductive lifespans. So killer whales are also interesting because after the baby is born, she doesn't leave the mom. They stay in these tight-knit family units. Forever. And so Forever. And so there is an opportunity for grandma to have an important impact yep. on, on the grand offspring's life. So these investigators studied two different killer whale populations using whale census data, which I love, mm. in Washington State you, and BC, Canada. They, ma- they mail out the census forms every 10 years totally. to the whales. And the whale, yeah, they're not having as many problems with it as we are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, uh, we should get Wilbur Ross on this. <laughs> <laughs> the... And and their main finding was that the grandmother killer whales provide these important survival benefits to the offspring, but 
it's particularly the case when they are post-reproductive and not having to worry about feeding their own calves. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was particularly interesting. Yeah. I agree. So like, like the reproductive grandmas are basically taking care of their own, their own calves. Of course. It makes sense. they're not taking care of their grand calves. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, it totally made sense. So they have this, this quote at the end of the article, post-reproductive female killer whales act as repositories for ecological knowledge and provide an important leadership role for the group when foraging in salmon grounds. And it turns out that the cost of losing a grandmother is the greatest during years when the salmon population is low. And so the authors speculate that because the salmon population is declining, grandmothers are going to become an even more important component of, of killer whale survival. The whole, the whole pod is under stress. Yeah. And they need that help. They need to know where to go and how to forage. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Go it was a grandmothers. Great yeah. I loved it too. I so, hadn't, I had never thought about like. this. I hadn't thought about this before that, that why, why do we, if we have reproduced and then raised our yeah. offspring. There's Why no need for, for us decades. anymore. Trust what funds. are we doing? Trust funds. Good point. Can I go <laughs> back to? Can I? Can I just go back to octopuses for a second before we leave here? Because sure. I I did not know how smart octopuses were. And then a faculty member in our department, who I will not name because I don't have her permission to, but took uh, my kids and I to the aquarium. At one night during a special event where they were, they had people around to explain to you things about all the, the different fish. Okay. They are not all fish. What do you call octopuses? They're cephalopods. Cephalopods. And there was a woman who was explaining to us that for the larger, more intelligent animals in the aquarium, this is the Boston Aquarium, but in general, they have to have activities for them to keep their minds wow. uh, engaged. And for the octopuses, what they do is they put their food in boxes that are puzzles and the octopus has to then figure out how to get its food out of this box and they said to us that they they struggle to come up with puzzles the that are hard enough for the octopus to be challenged that wow. the octopus can figure these things out in no time at all and i just thought that was so cool i agree and if i could add to the anecdote from that 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 wonderful book again which you really should read it's beautifully written and it's touching but they had this 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 story about this octopus that was sharing a room for some time with another tank that had some fish in it and so one night they, you know, one morning, excuse me, they come in and the fish are all gone from the other tank and the octopus is in its tank and the lid is closed. And they're just like, <laughs> so clearly what had happened is the octopus had opened the lid, left its tank, crawled across the floor into the other tank, eaten all the fish, closed the lid, went back across the floor, back into his tank and closed the lid to make it look like it Nothing wasn't me. Nothing had happened. It wasn't me. I don't know. Where'd those fish go? Hey, I've been here the whole time. It's I'm like, not smart enough look, to get over there. I'm a fish. How could I get over there? But there was water all over the floor, so it was clear that the octopus had done this. Isn't, I, I was feel covering like this is a scene in Finding Nemo or something. Or yeah. Finding like, right? Isn't there something with an octopus? I think the, there is. Yeah. Getting out of the, maybe it was, it was based on this story. They're uh, very smart animals. They well. are so smart. All right. Well, that is the end of our program. So if you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, you can... Tweet us at, at @pophealthyx, or you can tweet me at, at @prof_matt_fox, or Chris at id.gill, or Jen at, at Jennifer R. Ryder. 
Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and having the best beard in the business. Thank you for joining us. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. We enjoyed it. We hope you download our next episode. <laughs>